This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for June 4th, 2018. Bitcoin and other virtual currencies are all over the news, but what exactly are they? And are they real currencies at all, or just a vehicle for speculation, or just a scam? In this show, I ask an enthusiastic expert. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. Hello, I'm Calvin Halk, and this is Eric Ladwig, and we are a podcast about something. We like to tackle your favorite subjects in the entertainment world, the sports world. What are some of the things we've talked about here so uh, far? We've talked everything from NFL Draft to Infinity War recently, so if you like those things, you go ahead and you click on some of our available episodes. Available you can on. listen to us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, and tune in, subscribe, and also follow us on Twitter at APA something. Thanks for listening. On the line now, I have Daniel Amelli. He is a data scientist at a startup called PlusAmp, and he's also a specialist in Bitcoin, blockchain, and cryptocurrencies in general. Daniel, for people who know nothing about it, what the heck is a cryptocurrency? Cryptocurrency is the name for the uh, class of things, uh, starting with Bitcoin from 2009 Mm. and uh, now expanded out to uh, many other things that are similar and some which are quite different. Uh, The idea is that you have uh, a currency, but it's digital and it relies in some way on cryptography, Mm -hmm. uh, a form of math which allows you to encode things and make sure that the right people can read and write the, the right pieces of information. Okay, so we have currency like I have in my wallet, a little bit at least, which is banknotes. I could also have currency in my bank account, which is really just uh, represented by ones and zeros on the bank's computer. But this is essentially a currency that only exists on a computer. Who says it's a currency? Where does it get its value from? The value of of any money ultimately comes from people Mm -hmm. exchanging with each other cooperation. So uh, it's uh, people generate goods and services. Uh, if you uh, have no people, you, there's no need for money. Uh, if you were the only person in the world, wh- what would you do with money? Uh, mm-hmm. There would be no form of it that would be of, of any interest. Uh, once you have a few people, you realize that uh, by cooperating, by trading with each other, by specializing in certain things, then you can create more value than if everybody uh, behaved uh, only on their own. And uh, money is ultimately a way for people to keep track of the, the value they're providing because sometimes they can provide more value at a certain point in time and less, or they may need to borrow against their uh, future performance. Oh, okay. So cur- currency, I mean, money is essentially a way of transmitting value across space and time. I can get my wages this month and put it in the bank and wait until I go on my holidays to spend it. That's transferring value across time. Or I can take my 
money in my wallet and go 10 miles down the road to the grocery store and buy stuff. That's So that's an easy way to transfer money across space, to transfer value across space. But the money that I have is essentially money because the federal government said that it's money. Do I understand correctly that something like Bitcoin is only money because Bitcoin enthusiasts like you say that it's money? It, it's, it has value because uh, people in the Bitcoin system will accept it and will trade real goods. Uh, so <laughs> uh, in 2009, when Bitcoin started, there, there was mm-hmm. no established monetary value. And mm-hmm. the enthusiasts and people working on it were sending it back and forth to each other online to make sure that the system was working yeah. as they expected. Uh, it got its first monetary value in 2010 when somebody posted on a message board that they're willing to pay 10,000 uh, bitcoins for if someone would order them delivery pizza. Yep. And uh, today that's that pizza is now worth about $90 million. I, I, I hope that they, pizza tasted good. That at the time. I hope that pizza <laughs> tasted good because that, that guy paid a, what is now apparently an awful lot of money for two pizzas. I know that Silicon Valley, the HBO series, covered uh, cryptocurrency uh, recently. Let's just hear a little clip of the character Guilfoyle explaining it. In 350 BCE, Aristotle defined sound money as being durable, transferable, divisible, scarce, recognizable, and fungible what? Can we skip ahead 2,400 years? I mean, I know what cryptocurrency is. Why don't you tell me what you know about Bitcoin as a jumping off point? Okay, sure. Uh, well, I'm pretty sure it was founded by a Japanese guy. Every day, I read an article about how we're in a Bitcoin bubble. And who is writing those articles? I don't want to say the establishment, but is it possible that Warren Buffett called Bitcoin a pyramid scheme because he has 92 billion conventional dollars to protect? Let's say he's right. Let's say... So that, that's how died. Silicon Valley, or the character in Silicon Valley, represented it. Is that largely correct? Yeah, I don't disagree with anything that, that they're saying there. Uh, the the person who originally proposed uh, Bitcoin mm-hmm. uh, identified himself only as Satoshi Nakamoto. Mm-hmm. That's probably uh, probably a, Japan, a pseudonym, yes. Probably not, because he, he did speak uh, flawless English, and uh, in fact, you know, made some uh, you know particularly uh, British style references mm-hmm. as well. Uh, so there, there's no reason to you know, think it was anything other than a pseudonym to protect his identity. Uh, he was also building on the work of a lot of other academics uh, that came before him who were trying to make different kinds of uh, money-like systems. Mm-hmm. He uh, or she or they, as, as None they... Of them quite came together. Yeah, yeah, it could very well be a team of people or, or a woman or, or something, you know, something we don't anticipate. Um, and the Satoshi went to great lengths to hide his her they identity because uh as we know that naturally you know people would want to find out who this person is would interview them or you know certain governments would think that they were directly responsible for causing some kind of disruption and um, would give uh, satoshi a hard time about that Okay. What I want to do then is I want to just talk a little bit about a couple of the ways that Bitcoin works. And you can tell me if I'm getting it wrong or not. So the system as it is programmed is designed in such a way that only 21 million Bitcoins can ever exist. Now you can have subdivisions of Bitcoins, but the total uh, that can possibly exist is 21 million. 
and they are being mined. And this this word mined actually means devoting now a very large amount of computing power to essentially making very, very complex mathematical calculations. And then whoever does these calculations is rewarded with a certain amount of the new Bitcoins. They have not all been allocated yet. Um, and that, uh, that allocation of Bitcoin is a, an award for providing the computer hardware and the computer crunching power that manages the system. Is that essentially correct? Yes. Yes. There's certainly more details to it than that, but absolutely. Uh, the issue with creating a new currency is deciding how it will be initially allocated. Mm -hmm. And if if somebody creates a currency and then allocates everything to themselves and then says to other people, okay, now you have to pay me for that, it, it seems a bit unfair. If you were to give the top three advantages that Bitcoin or cryptocurrency in general has over uh, over regular currency that we all have in our bank accounts and in our wallets, most of us anyway, what would those advantages be? Uh, one advantage is that it is a, a digital bearer instrument. So, mm-hmm. the uh, you know, an individual could have Bitcoin and they can choose to store it in a very secure way if they want to, even memorizing a a code that would allow them to access those bitcoins Mm -hmm. and then this would uh, allow them to have some funds that uh, couldn't be confiscated so if they if their country is destabilized and they need to flee to another country and they don't know which one they might be going to and if they if they're all their goods and things will be taken away from them if they'll be searched on the way this is a way for them to have some kind of funds that can so there's no piece of paper that's like a $20 bill. There's just something in their that person's head that they can access the record of the Bitcoin on the server. Any other specific advantages that you see of it? Uh, another advantage is that this is the you know first currency that has that fixed supply. So mm-hmm. it's an ongoing economic experiment. It, this, is, this hasn't been done before. Even gold has a, a limited supply, but it continually is increasing. Mm-hmm. And that's not going to stop. Uh, so it will be interesting to see how that uh, effect of that 21 million limit plays out. If that in fact increases the volatility, but also causes a, a accumulation of purchasing power over time, as opposed to uh, with most traditional currencies, people expect the purchasing power to slowly decrease over time. Given that you mentioned that, in January, at the start of 2017, what was the value of one Bitcoin in U.S. dollars? Uh, around uh, this start of 2017, it, it was trading uh, slightly under a thousand dollars, and by the by the end of the year, it had reached a high of uh, twenty thousand dollars. Okay, so just just to go back to that uh, that pizza, somebody in 2011, I believe it was, bought a pizza. I'm sorry, bought two pizzas for ten thousand Bitcoin. By the start of 2017, so that was just six years later. It, there was 1,000 Bitcoins to one US dollar. So that would have been... $1,000 to a Bitcoin. Excuse me, yes. Each Bitcoin was trading at 1,000 US dollars. So right. that was $10 million for those two pizzas. By the end of 2017, it wasn't $1,000 to the Bitcoin. It was $20,000 to the Bitcoin. It has gone down to about half of that since. But still, that was a, that's an enormous... Uh, change. Isn't Bitcoin really a bubble, a pyramid scheme? 
Well, Bitcoin is not a pyramid scheme because people are not, there's no hierarchy and people are not making payments uh, up in a hierarchy. It's not a Ponzi because nobody is operating it and there's no specific promise of return. People can buy it thinking that they could sell it for more money later, but there's there's nobody actually in charge who's making that claim. So it's the same as if people buy gold or uh, some other item and, and hope that they can sell it for more later. Um, it, there's m- many different reasons people might buy Bitcoin. And I don't think people should go into it thinking that they're guaranteed some certain return. Oh, okay. What they are but they're, but they're, they're looking at massive returns. Hang on, hang, hang on a second, Daniel. They're looking at some people getting massive returns, and it is enormously tempting to get. When you see the previous guy getting a huge return, it's enormously tempting to see that you to think that you can get that return as well and buy into it. The bitcoins are intrinsically worthless, and and clearly some people have made an enormous amount of money out of it. By definition, that means some people must lose a lot of money. Well, uh, that would be true if if you assume that Bitcoins are worthless, which I don't agree with. Uh, if you have Bitcoins, or more technically, you have a private key that allows you to access a certain amount of Bitcoins, mm-hmm. that gives you the right to write to the Bitcoin network. Uh, it allows you to write, uh, encode data permanently to the blockchain. Mm-hmm. And being able to securely, uh, provably, uh, with a timestamp, put data onto uh, uh, you know thousands of servers around the world that will keep it in perpetuity, and anyone can access it anywhere in the world, actually does have value. Let me, let me throw out a couple of problems that people mm-hmm. have proposed for this. So one of them clearly is that, and I understand you, that there's perhaps not. A, Perhaps there is those um, not Japanese people uh, who uh, created it may well have kept a few for themselves. But you say because there's nobody at the top of the scheme, then it's not a pyramid scheme or not a not a Ponzi. I think for somebody who stands to lose a lot of money, that's an academic difference. Um, but is Bitcoin secure? The system itself is extremely secure. However, uh, just like. Uh, you know, with conventional dollars or, or you know, pounds or euros, mm-hmm. uh, someone could store them in an insecure way. So if mm-hmm. you keep a cash in your back pocket while you walk around, it's not that secure. If you keep it in a, in a vault uh, underground, it's much more secure. So with Bitcoin, people have the option of securing their Bitcoins in uh, different levels of security. And unfortunately, if people are securing in a lower level, there there is a, a risk there. The system itself, though, has never been hacked. Uh, well, well, just hold, hold on for a second. Yeah, um, there are Bitcoin exchanges, and to name a few, Mt. Gox, yeah. Bitomat, MyBitcoin, Bitcoinica, Bitcoin Savings and Trust, Bitfloor, InstaWallet, Bitcoin Foundation, and many more. What they all have in common is that every single one of them either was hacked and had most of their Bitcoins stolen or that they were just a criminal enterprise to begin with to get people to deposit their Bitcoins and then have them stolen. That doesn't sound so secure to me. Right. So this is like uh, if you have gold coins and then you you mail them to somebody on in the other side of the world who promises to keep them safe for you. And then when you ask for them back, they say, uh, sorry. Yeah, uh, it's not a fundamental problem with gold. Other than that, uh, if it's a bearer instrument and you give it to somebody else, you don't really have it, especially if they're in a completely different jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, uh, 
but many, as, as a percentage yeah, of the total, half or more have, of these exchanges have have failed because uh, they they're new, they're not regulated, and uh, frankly, they're you know they're, a lot of them were not very responsibly run. But the idea is that you don't actually have to give uh, Bitcoin to somebody else. You can hold them yourself. Um, th- that, that's true. It is possible. And I'll come to that in a moment. But given mm-hmm. that it's probably only existed for about a decade and the amount that has been stolen, Bitcoin is easily, if you regard it as a currency, it's the currency that has had the pro- highest proportion of its total value stolen of any currency in history, isn't it? Uh I, I I don't have those numbers, but certainly uh, very significant amounts have been stolen at different points in time. Uh, it's still uh, maturing, and I think a lot more value will be created in the future. That now going forward, more people will be taking it seriously as a value. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the issues early on was that because the value started out very low and then went up suddenly, mm-hmm. there were people who were thinking, "Oh, well, I only have ten dollars worth of Bitcoin, so I, I don't have to worry about." Uh, put keeping it in a secure way. And then while they were working on other projects, that, that became worth $100,000. And then it became, uh, you know, uh, a target for, for um, thieves. For, yeah, for hackers to steal. Uh, one of the problems with the exchanges is that a lot of different people are pooling their funds all together. So it creates that one central target that is appealing for hackers as opposed to trying to get smaller amounts from many different people. Sure, but the other problem, and you're right that it is possible to store that file locally on your own computer, um, the difficulty with that is that computers are not terribly durable. Most people who are sitting in front of a computer are sitting in, some, in front of a piece of hardware that's only a couple of years old. Eventually, all computers that store Bitcoin will crash or blow up or turn into a brick one way or the other, and uh, eventually it'll all be lost, won't it? Um, well, uh, yeah, so people should, again, find an appropriate level of security based on uh, the the amount of they've invested in Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are devices called hardware wallets. One is the called a Trezor, T-R-E-Z-O-R. This is essentially a, a, a complicated small, version of, of a USB drive, yeah? Yeah, it's a, it's a small device that allows for, you know, very secure uh, storage of Bitcoin, other cryptocurrencies. You know how many dead USB drives I have in my in my drawer? Yeah, so so any computer hardware can, can fail or become obsolete, which is why you can create a uh, backup of the information needed to access your Bitcoins onto mm-hmm. a piece of paper or onto uh, a steel plate, as some people uh, might be doing. Um, And then the nice thing is if the hardware fails or is lost or stolen, uh, the same value can be retrieved uh, with that. So the... It's like making a copy of keys. You don't, you haven't copied the value, but you have another way to access the value. I, I understand that then could be stolen, and somebody else might have a way to access that value. But leave that aside. One of the uh, things probably worth mentioning is that um, the BBC's program, more or less, which is a statistical program, did a quick analysis. They reckoned that the carbon cost and the energy cost of one Bitcoin transaction is probably something like 50 times greater than an equivalent transaction using a a credit card. 
I'm not sure how sustainable that is and I'm not sure how sustainable uh, having uh, server farms, be they in Iceland or China, of uh, hundreds of computers hooked together trying to do the um, Bitcoin mining. But that's probably technical problems that can probably be solved. I'm thinking more of an economic problem here. And I just want to go back to the guy who spent the first transaction, $10,000 for two pizzas. Uh, Sorry, $10,000 bitcoins for two pizzas, which turns out to be hundreds Mm -hmm. of millions of dollars. My reason for saying that Bitcoin isn't a real currency is not any of those technical problems. It's a pure financial problem. So yeah, if people were holding Bitcoin when its value shot up, well, that's really good. But what if somebody had taken a loan of 10,000 Bitcoins in 2011? What would they do now? Uh, Yeah, they they would be defaulting on the loan. Uh, a loan uh, denominated in bitcoins uh, is not advisable, and uh, certainly something people should be, you know, uh, concerned about. Uh, or uh, if someone is, you know, is taking out a loan to buy bitcoins, and the assumption mm-hmm. it will go up a certain amount, a certain amount of time, I think that would also be a mistake. Because, as I said, there, there's no one. Sure, and that, that's that. something. Yes, and it will be it shares or whatever. It's always a bad idea to borrow money to speculate. But I'm, t- uh, you know, people are promoting the idea that Bitcoin could be an international currency to compete with U.S. dollars or euro or uh, whatever other currency, Chinese yuan or whatever. But if it is impossible to be a sane person and borrow Bitcoin. It is also impossible then to lend Bitcoin. It's just not stable enough and it has no reason ever to be stable enough to be a financial instrument. It's an instrument of speculation, isn't it? Uh, I, I wouldn't say it's it's solely that. There are people speculating in Bitcoin. There's other people who are using it for their uh, daily transactions or, or wages uh, as well, if that's works out to be the best solution for them. Uh, however, lending in Bitcoin is still a problem. There's been uh, some companies attempting to do that, and it has not worked out so far, partly because Bitcoin is still new. It's still in this growth phase, and it's still extremely volatile. I don't expect the volatility to go away anytime soon. Uh, by corollary, Dan- Daniel, if lending, uh, if borrowing in Bitcoin is not possible, then lending is also not possible. Uh, I'm not saying it's not possible, but it's been very problematic so far, and uh, I don't think that's about to be solved in terms of Bitcoin. Uh, However, uh, at a later point in time, it's more likely that there'll be more available uh, derivatives and products which will allow people to uh, potentially hedge some of the price fluctuations, uh, as well as people are trying to build uh, stable coins in Mm -hmm. cryptocurrency, uh, cryptocurrencies that would uh, be uh, not fluctuating significantly with respect to, say, dollars, euros, or, or real-world purchasing power. Uh, and these are still experimental projects, but I think there there is potentially uh, a solution to this. Okay. You, you said the word cryptocurrencies, and we've used that word a few times. I want to explain what that is. That's essentially using this blockchain technology, and blockchain t- chain technology is a public database recording who owns, not with the person's name, but just with a, uh, an ID number, recording who owns what Bitcoin. And this public database is available for everyone to see. It doesn't connect with people's names. The reason that database is needed is to prevent somebody from spending the same Bitcoin twice, once buying something from me from it, with it, and then straight away uh, buying something from you with it. That blockchain technology basically 
is the fundamental of Bitcoin. You can't have Bitcoin or any cryptocurrency without it. Am I correct? Well, it, it, Bitcoin and blockchain are, are tied together very strongly, and, and you described it well. Um, there, there are some attempts now to create cryptocurrencies that, that are not based on uh, blockchains. Uh, but again, you know, this is, uh, you know, ongoing development. So it's worth keeping an eye on and we'll see if this is uh, successful. Uh, but yeah, uh, block, the blo- uh, blockchain is a, a write only, you know, shared database that's very mm-hmm. secure where it, it's constantly uh, referring back to itself in a way that it makes it very difficult or essentially impossible to change any prior records. Okay, but and one of the. It, one it of allows the... people to, you know, create this digital scarcity. Okay, but one of the selling points for Bitcoin is comes from perhaps a libertarian type political philosophy that says that we can essentially get government out of the loop and we can have a secure way of trusting each other without having to have the government guaranteeing uh, the money. And you can do that essentially privately, that nobody can see what you're doing and you don't have any evil tax man or any evil government prying in your affairs. That's part of the essential ideology of uh, Bitcoin, isn't it? It's it's not part of the ideology however there there are many people who are libertarians who are initially attracted to bitcoin for this reason okay. uh, it's important for people to realize bitcoin's not anonymous it's uh pseudonymous but it's also public and and permanent uh it would be an ideal currency for somebody creating a new current a uh, new uh continent a new country in the in the middle of the ocean uh and it's also good if, if people need something to use if their government currency has uh, collapsed uh, but it's not, you know, necessarily uh, connected to an ideology. People of all different ideologies could potentially find a use for it. Okay, I want to just listen to a short clip from actually a different podcast called Reply All. And they did a little exercise trying to find out, trying to find where somebody's Bitcoin had gone, a woman who had essentially lost her Bitcoin from uh, a time when they were, like you described, with very low value and then uh, um, wanted to retrieve it. She had forgotten various things about it. They eventually contacted a consultant. I just want to listen to this quick clip. Should, should I try and give you the story without you even telling me and see whether that matches the story that you are going to tell me? Absolutely. Go for it. Okay. So you provided me with a Bitcoin address and I would have really liked it if you didn't even provide me the name of the person that you were interested in. Um, because I would have been able to go back and basically tell you who that was and where she got her Bitcoin from and where she sent her Bitcoin to. I figured it out in less than 30 seconds. I'm going to do it in real time just while we sit here. The deal is that like, since every transaction using Bitcoin is public, he's watching money go from place to place, and he's sort of using deductive reasoning and That kind of uh, educated shoots guesses. down that idea of it being completely anonymous, doesn't it? Yeah, that's, that's what I'm saying, that it, it's not anonymous. It, it was never intended to be anonymous. Uh, just some people started saying that, and they would be incorrect. Okay. Um, uh, Those are kind of technical things. And the one last topic that I want to touch on is more something that possibly economists are better able to comment on than uh, Bitcoin experts. But I'll throw the question at you in any case. And you might uh, know from your history lessons uh, at the early part of the 20th century, there was a huge debate about the gold standard. And the gold standard was when a fixed amount of gold was uh, guaranteed to be exchangeable for a fixed amount of dollars for any uh, person 
in the United States. So there was a fixed ratio of gold to dollars, and that limited the amount of dollars that could be printed because the government had to have gold to back it up. The problem with that is that the economy grows, and as the economy grows, if the money supply doesn't grow, then you will have deflation. So if people make stuff that's worth more, but there's no more money around to buy it, then you have to reduce the prices. Um, this limitation of 21 million uh, bitcoins, uh, which has been built into the system, that essentially is necessary for cryptocurrencies because Otherwise, it would turn into a pyramid scheme that whoever's in charge could just create more when they feel like putting it in their pocket. But it makes it really not possible to work as a as a as a basic currency, doesn't it? Well, again, there's there's different theories about this, and I think uh, the reality will show which theories are are correct. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited to see the experiment now. I think that a little deflation will be fine as. Uh, we've had uh, some degree of deflation with uh, technology where mm-hmm. people know that next year they'll be able to buy their computer or cell phone or, or laptop and so on. Uh, you know, it'll be faster and it'll be cheaper. And, mm-hmm. and so why should they buy it today? And yet they're they're lined up around the block to buy it today. Uh, so I think even, as long as, you know, with a little, uh, a little deflation in there, they'll be fine. Uh, however, Bitcoin is still inflationary right now. It has, a, 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 you know, a few percent inflation per year. Uh, and that will be slowly going down to zero over a very long period of time. Um, so it won't really be deflationary unless, uh, you know, a lot of time has passed and people are still losing a significant amount of Bitcoins. Uh, but I think people will become more careful with them. Um, you you mentioned about um, highly uh, disposable products like uh, cell phones and computers, uh, which have a very short life in any case, and people buy them and they buy a much better uh, phone or computer a few years later, possibly for a lower price. And that works in that market. But in general, economies with deflation are in big trouble because if anything you can buy today, you'll be able to buy tomorrow for cheaper. That turns the idea of a market on its head, doesn't it? I think people have become very used to uh, inflation as the standard. So I think it will be interesting to see uh, right now, you know, there's no economy that's gone entirely Bitcoin. Uh, and if one does, then we'll see if that causes this distortion uh, and problems or if it actually causes other benefits or if it causes both benefits and problems. Uh, right now, it's still just a auxiliary currency. It's just a different option that some people within different economies are using, but not the majority anywhere. Daniel Ameli, data scientist and a Bitcoin expert. Thank you very much for talking to me. You're very welcome. Great talking with you. Have you read a blog post or an opinion piece that you think is really right or really wrong? Tell us why. Email podcast at challengingopinions.com and let's discuss it on the next show. Go to the website for sources and for Daniel's links. And while you're there, please like the show on Facebook, follow at Challenging O on Twitter, and get in touch with me if you can suggest a guest or topic for a future show. Also, you can find out how to subscribe to the podcast for free on your computer, on your phone, or by email. It's all at www.challengingopinions.com. I've also created a Patreon account, so if you'd like to support the podcast, I'd really appreciate that. And you can even support the show at no extra cost to yourself by using my Amazon affiliate link. All the details are on the website. 
Coming up next Monday, that's June 11th, I'll be talking to Miranda Yardley, a blogger who bills herself as an iconoclastic transsexual. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening. Thank you.